0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. You are not alone. Now, it could sound like a Star Wars movie, that could sound like a Keats poem, but the presence of God is with you. And that's the way the universe is designed so that the presence of God could be with you. And that the presence of God, which is with you, which has paid a high price to be a part of your life, the presence of God it was very, very costly. And you are very, very worth it, in God's eyes. If you will walk away with that, understanding, if you will begin to incorporate that into your living, it will change your life if it hasn't already. No small promise. But it's not my promise, it's not, Carl said so, you know, and if if you would just send 1495, (laughs) my address, because that's what the central, foundational message is in the Bible. That's what the central fundamental reflection is of the universe. Whoa, big stuff. Good morning. <laughs> so, my name is Carl Gaelic, and if I haven't met you yet, I'm going, there goes my sermon. Now I don't know what I'm going to do. Now I'm going to have to make the whole thing up. I, didn't know. I am the substitute preacher uh, for John. It is my privilege to do this, and I love this series. I love the series, you guys got the coolest series going on, the vulnerability and all that stuff. Uh, so when uh, my turn came up, I said, I'll preach, I'll preach, I'll preach, and he goes, which one do you want? I go, I want presence. I want presents, I want presence." And John gave me the present, I'm preaching on presence. I love the play on words. So that's the whole focus and understanding today, and we need to kind of warm up and kind of figure this thing out together, because it's huge promises. It's huge understanding. One more sort of introductory comment before I get into the introduction. This is the introduction to the introduction. Yeah, that's, so if you're looking forward to leaving early, let that hope evaporate. <laughs> so the introduction to the introduction. God is present within you. The universe itself exclaims that. It's woven in. When I set out to do a doctoral thesis, um i said the thesis i wanted to answer the question i want to address is if god is indeed the creator of the universe his fingerprints should be over everything be everywhere on everyone so i set out asking sort of a large big goal which by the way got repeatedly rejected by my major professor but that's a whole other story i'm over it That is what I discovered to be absolutely true beyond any doubt. I'm going to try to give you a hint and a sense of how that kind of came about without giving you a doctoral thesis. Because if I start using doctoral thesis language, my wife will walk out. (laughs) One of the key phrases that I had in there in my doctoral dissertation was, presence is systemically determinative. And I was pretty proud of that. And because when you have a doctoral thesis and you're working on a doctoral program, you're supposed to sound very esoteric. And Presence is systemically determinative, sounded like that. And I gave her a chance to edit my documentation and my paper, and and all she did was circle that and said, speak English, (laughs) in her own loving way. This is the English version. Of presence is systemically determinative. I love this stuff. Be. Whoa, what do we got going in there? There we go. Be present. The power of being face-to-face with God That's where we're headed. So let's start with something mundane. Um, this is, oh, what happened to the guy reading a newspaper? So this is a uh, the picture got kind of shifted a little bit. Ever seen that picture of the the uh, 1950s guy with the square room glasses reading the newspaper and the wife is sitting there jabbering and talking? And, uh, it's sort of the classic, the husband is present but not present. You seen that before? That's sort of the classic 50s, 60s sort of, kind of. what's that? We've lived it. You've lived it, okay, you, you've been there. This could be a picture of you. I'm so glad that our generation and generations after me, like you, young men right there, are over that, because uh, this is what you've given us. So this is what we've exchanged for the newspaper picture. And uh, we've now got the, the, have you ever been in a restaurant? You see that? Where two people are sitting across from each other, and both are on their phones. Can I can I can I talk? Is is it okay if I just vent a little bit right now? What are you gonna do? Stop me from venting? I don't know. Anyway, so is now how the the phones have been home attached and uh, connected to the watches, and when I'm talking to somebody, so we're getting into a deep dark discussion to do this. I think am I boring you? You know how do you do that? They're actually getting messages. The same phenomenon is true. Whether it's the newspaper at breakfast table in the 1950s or the phone today, there is a fight and a battle to go on with presence. How hard is it to not check your phone when it buzzes in your pocket when you're in conversation with someone? And I won't beat that to death, but you can see that the a fight for our presence and our focus and our time together is still underway from the 50s to now maybe in humanity. So, if you've ever been at the bedside of somebody who's dying in a hospice situation, perhaps, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, here's some preparation, is that even when they're unconscious, even when they are um, in a coma, you still can sense their presence. And when their spirit passes, when they die, when they stop breathing, and the heart stops beating, and the brain stops functioning, when that happens, even though they may not have said a word for days or weeks, something is different. The presence is no longer in the room. The Last opportunity I had was with Mary's mom when she was dying and she was in hospice. We spoke to her and we sang with her and we talked to her, even though her hearing aids weren't in and and doing that. And when she gave up her spirit, Mary Louise and I looked at each other, we were crying, said, She's gone. You could tell there was something different that was there. Her spirit was no longer in the room. Having read some books on near death experiences, then I looked up and said, hi, mom. And her spirit went someplace else. Presence is that powerful. You don't have to be conscious to communicate it. You could be in a coma and your presence will still be felt, sensed, part of what's going on. Yet this is essentially the sort of the gist and the dynamic of life is that God is reaching out to share his presence with us to kind of bring us in together, come let us reason together, and we tend to live life moving away, moving apart. How many of us have lived a life, or how many of us have can talk about, can focus on chapters in our life, where we simply turned away from God and walked from his presence? What is God trying to do? Share his presence in whatever kind of form, illustrate the price that he paid to give us his presence, and yet, we push against it, so it's an interesting dynamic. It's it's like um, it's like going to the dentist. It's like we all know we've got to go there. The toothache isn't going to go away, but we're afraid of what might happen. Science and the power of present. Before we get into the scripture part of it, now I'm moving into the late part of the introduction, just to give you some sense of peace without this whole thing. So. <laughs> Science and the power of presence is really interesting. This is Carlo Rovelli. from. He's a theoretical physicist. All right? Now, this is kind of weird, but I'm going to go here for a little bit and, and keep moving on. He, he says, relational quantum mechanics treats the state of quantum system as being observer-dependent. That's a key phrase, as being observer-dependent. That is, the state is the relation between the observer and the system. Let us sink in for a little bit. Now, this belongs under the sort of the heading of Presence is Systemically Determinative, but it's quantum physics, and I read a number of quantum physics articles, and, and I understand probably about the top 10% of what I read, and then I pretend to understand the next 20% of what I read, And then I just shrug my shoulders and stop reading the article after that. So with that sort of disclaimer in mind, I want to kind of just tear this thing apart and say, what is it, what's Carlos saying? So quantum physics, which is a study of the smallest bits of matter known to humankind at the time, treats the state of a quantum system as being observer dependent. This means that in order for something to exist, it must have an observer. (laughs) <laughs> think about that for a sec quantum physics people are telling us for something to exist it must have observed because the nature of reality is found in the observer and the system this means if the universe is indeed real it has a master observer Whoa, that sounds cautiously like divine, like God. No, no, no. no. So there's something so powerful about presence that it absolutely shapes the nature, the function, the power, the systems of the universe, according to quantum mechanics and Carlo Verli, a theoretical physicist. Huh. Thank you, Carlo. Let's go on to one more. Then i get out of quantum physics. Quantum physics is more than physics. It is a new form of mysticism. I love that. Which suggests the interconnectedness of all things and beings and the connection of our minds with a cosmic mind. This blows my mind. I'll just run through this just a little bit, just kind of unpack it, just a little bit. Quantum physics is more than physics. It's a new form of mysticism, meaning... Quantum mechanics and engineers and scientists are saying, "Whoa, we we have to leave the world of science in order to understand and explain this." I'm going. Keep coming, Keep coming. Keep coming. We're good. We suggest the interconnectedness of all things. What did I say earlier? My thesis was: I wanted to pose the question: If God is indeed creator of the universe, was she his fingerprint? Was she his fingerprint? everywhere. Oh, so now the National Center for Biotechnology Information, which is a real organization, I looked it up in the government, for is supported by tax dollars, says that there's an interconnectedness of all things and beings, of all things and beings. The whole universe is interconnected. And the connection of our minds with a cosmic mind. This just cracks me up. I want to look at the screen and yell out, Say God! Call it divine! Cosmic mind. Notice all the dancing around with mysticism language that has to happen in order to not make it theology, to not make it divinely inspired, to not make it all held together by one divine creator. Because it seems as though presence is so powerful that it interconnects with everyone, everywhere, all the time. End of sentence. Mm -hmm. I love this stuff. But let's leave all the quantum physics stuff behind. If I preach again, I'll probably bring it up again, but for now. Because I want to introduce you to the Gospel of John. With all this sort of theoretical physics and quantum mechanics in the background, Listen to the Gospel of John. So John, in in his Gospel, is likely the last book written in the New Testament. The Gospel of John reads nothing like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Nothing like it. It's got a different chronology to it. It kind of weaves a story around seven cycles and it's a long thing to get into, but the the seven cycles are also found in the book of Revelation, and it starts small and keeps unfolding and gets into a bigger and bigger and grander and grander picture. So John is using symbolic literary techniques to kind of pull us into his world. And so he starts with a sort of like it kind of works like this. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. The Gospel of John begins with this little tightly packed phrase. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, listen again, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Huh. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Go to 14. And the Word... Became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, Glory glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's this pinnacle truth. Jesus wants us to, or what the Lord wants us to know, what John is writing in this opening, wisdom filled, packed introduction is the word connects everyone, everywhere, everything. What's John talking about? Quantum physics. Logos. The word for law, lo- the word for being redundant, the word for word is logos. Logos means word, speech, or discourse. If you look it up in from Merriam Webster Dictionary, the logos is ancient Greek philosophy is the controlling principle of the universe. Huh. Way back then, John begins and introduces his gospel by saying, "Everything is connected to God, and God is connected to everyone, everywhere, all the time." He plucked the word "the logos from Greek philosophy and Greek theology, and brought it into the gospel and said, "This is the core." Back to the core of the message, the little word I want you to leave with today. You are not alone. And a huge price has been paid for you. The Logos in ancient Greek philosophy, the controlling principle of the universe. So, to press the Gospel of John, chapter 1, it could read a little bit like, in the beginning was the controlling principle of of the world. And the controlling principle of the world was God. And the controlling principle of the world was with God. See, he, you might substitute quantum physics. You might substitute um, evolutionary biology. What, whatever it is you want to substitute, John is saying, this big picture thing is where we begin because it absolutely shows you the fingerprint of God everywhere and every, on everyone all the time. The calling of evil is to convince you it doesn't exist, to blind you to it, to numb you to it. The calling of evil is to make you feel alone, to lead you to believe there is no presence. So now let's get to the word that's going to lead us through the rest of this message. This is from Psalm 139. All that was by way of introduction. This ends the introduction, if you're keeping track. God investigates my life, from Psalm 139, called The Message. It gets all the facts firsthand. I'm an open book to you, even from a distance. You know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave. You know when I get back. I'm never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say before I start the first sentence. I look behind me, you're there. Then up ahead, you're there too. There it is. Your reassuring presence coming and going. This is too much. This is too wonderful. I can't take it all in. Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit, to be out of your sight? If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I fly in the morning wings to the far western horizon, you'll find me in a minute. You're already there waiting. I said to myself, oh, he even sees me in the dark, and at night I'm immersed in the light. In fact, it's a fact. Darkness isn't dark to you. Night and day, darkness and light, they're all the same to you. C.S. Lewis would kind of use the present pluperfect perfect phrase a lot to help understand and build into his writings. It's already completed. It's already done. And that's important to know because I want you to have a sense of security and safety. The presence of God is not only with you; it's already paid for. It's already has you into a future. It's been, your eternity has already begun. If somebody ever asked you for a favor and you said to them, "It's already done," it isn't. But you're trying to convey to them a sense of confidence that you are going to execute the favor as they requested, or do the task or the job. It's already done. So that they can walk away and turn away with a sense of confidence and peace that's going to be accomplished. That's the pluperfect tense that's used throughout the scriptures and in Psalm 139 to say, it's already done. Your eternity has begun. People say to me, uh, when I get to heaven, i got a list of questions. No, you don't. When you get to heaven, you're going to go, what? Why didn't Carl tell me? Well, uh, because I didn't know. Everything is going to be that clear, that profound, that perfect presence and revealed. Real presence in biblical terms, not quantum mechanic terms. Panim. It means faces or front or inside panim. Now, there's something that I want you to know about, the the faces of God. The word your presence in Psalm 139 is panim in the Hebrew. Now, what's critical to understand here is the I am ending. The I am ending is a hint at what the psalmist is trying to communicate that's buried in the text. God's name is, or God's title, rather, is Elohim. And if you say it right, you've got to kind of have a Elohim. The I am ending means that the way it is found in Genesis chapter 1 is from the very beginning talking about singular and plurality. So what we have is a hint of the Trinity found as early as Genesis chapter 1. Because who did all the creating? Elohim. And the word Elohim is plural used in the singular. I know, isn't that weird? Isn't that confusing? It's odd. It's a hint of relationship and plurality and Trinitarian. We wouldn't pick it up that it's Trinitarian for many, many years, but it's already embedded in the text. The same I am ending is found on on the presence the psalmist is talking about. He's indicating that not only the face of God, it could also mean the faces of God. The faces of God, meaning the face of the Father, the face of the Son, the face of the Spirit, they're all turning and facing you. And in some way, they're all united and still all separate. You know how that works? Me neither. (laughs) I just know it's embedded in the text. And that he wants his presence to be within you, around you, and about you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have one purpose, And that is to turn their faces, face, singular, face, plural, I don't even know, to you. God wants to face you. God's facing us in our journey. He said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. This is Moses going, are you kidding me? Cross the desert with these bunch of whiners, (laughs) with these people complaining. Right? You know, you, they, you don't, they don't trust you to give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. You get manna in the desert. You press John next time. You know what the word manna means? What is it? No, that's what it means. It's like a who's on first. What is it? The Israelites walked out of their tents and went. What is it? And Moses said, Yes, that's correct. <laughs> True story. My presence will be with you, and I will give you rest. God, he complained to God and said, look, you give them manna, what is it? They want, they want meat, you give them meat, they have so much meat, it's coming out their noses. Moses says, I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. This is not for me. Have you ever said that to God? This is not for me. This is a task I don't want. What does God say? I'm going to make sure that he, you can accomplish it. And you know, he says, no, I'm going to give you what you need, and what you need is my presence, my face. I'm going to look you in the eye and go, I'm going to be with you, man. We're going to walk it. We're going to talk it. We're going to deal with it together. Last time you sit in the front pew, isn't it? Thank you, brother. The effective phenomena is presence. I'll go with you, Moses. I'll go with you. The assurance of presence comes up and says here in Numbers, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you? Lift up his face upon you and give you peace. You've been hurting in the hospital, ICU. People have said to me, Pastor, it's good to see your face. I've always been humbled by that because My face isn't the face of a doctor. I can't cure what they're going through. I can't change their outcome. The stage 4 cancer is about to take their life, and I can't take away their pain. But they still share with me over the years of ministry. Pastor, it's good to see your face. The power of God's presence as it works within us changes hearts and lives, no matter what, no matter when, no matter where. It's like the fingerprint of God is everywhere all the time on everything and everyone. Hmm. The whole presence of God, is. I want a little history. Hebrew was my toughest course at seminary, and uh, I struggled through it. I'd come home at night or after class and go, oh, I'm just shaking my head. And she would give me encouragement and rub my shoulders, but she would never do my Hebrew homework. <laughs> so uh, the reason I want to share this with you is because this is the first word I ever translated. And you've got to imagine this young seminarian student going, umana, 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 well, umana, umana, well. umana, umana, well. umana, umana, um, Emmanuel. I was like so excited. This was the first Hebrew word ever translated. I called Mary Louise over and I kept re-translating it over and over again. Because what does it mean? It means, manna, with us, El, God. It really is literally God with us, but it's written in the Hebrew, with us, God. Point of that? It's not my lousy B-minus-minus-minus that I got in Hebrew, but that within the Hebrew is buried the phenomena of what God wants in Jesus Christ. He wanted to make sure that you knew that God was with you, that he would pitch his tent among you. Jesus experienced the intentional absence of God's presence. This is the only time when the absence of God's presence is so focused and so powerful. So God's primary focus is to make sure that his presence is with you in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you know you're not alone in any situation ever. That was true for everybody on the planet. It is true for everybody on the planet except one, Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. It's St. Paul writing 2 Corinthians. So, what you've got now is for our sake. Why did he do this? Because he loves you, he loves me. He made him to be sin. Don't miss the impact and the power of what Jesus became. It wasn't just a physical crucifixion death, as agonizing and as horrid and horrific as that was, that was peanuts. It was cakewalk compared to being made sin. I have no imagination for it. My words fall short. My proclamation is shy. What's it like to be made sin? I don't know, but Jesus does. And that's funny because he's the only one on the planet who knew no sin. Why did he do this? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God so that his presence could be shared with us. That's the, it's a love that's incredibly difficult to define and to preach and to grasp. Seems, really? He didn't even know me. Well, that's just it. He did and does and will. And this is why he did it. The only person on the planet for whom God's presence wasn't a part of the plan. God's presence then redeemed and restored. The purpose of what Jesus Christ did for us is that we might go to Revelation 22, the last chapter of Revelation. They will see His face. Boom! All through the book of the all through the books of the Bible, all through the history and the scriptures, we got this this whole phenomena, this whole incredible story, and the people of Israel and Jesus Christ and the birthing of the church. What's it all about? This right here. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So that you will, in heaven, in eternity, your loved ones who are already there. Mom and I just had this discussion. The last of her generation. Loved ones who are already there, see the face of God. And it is the lamp, and it is the light. The whole point is to be face-to-face with God. This is why the life-giving waters of baptism are so critical. God chose sacraments which are visible manifestations of invisible realities. So that water by itself is well, it's water. We have a lot of it right there in the Gulf. But the the water is attached to God's Word. And God's Word attached to water is called baptism so that we have a physical feeling what that's like. You know, one of the things that was phenomenal was I baptized all of all of my grandkids, it's been a delight, and I baptized all of them in a large body of water. So the first one was in the Atlantic Ocean, just outside of, uh, off of Kiowa Island, rolled up pant legs, holding Luke, and it was very tricky, and I was used to having a fount to, to, to do this, so it's a lot easier, but it's not as easy when you walk out into the ocean, you feel the waves. but it was very phenomenal because I could feel the coolness of the Atlantic Ocean and feel the waves kind of splash up on my shin and up to my knees and begin to, okay. my corduroys wet, not corduroys, khakis, I always say corduroys, khakis wet as we go along there. And I found a way to bend down a whole loop like this and take, and as the wave would come, to cup a little bit of water. Then I looked up and I saw the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean. And I thought, what a beautiful image of God's grace. This incredible Atlantic Ocean, which stretched out before us, and this baptismal party that made up a family. And my hand caught a little bit of it. And I baptized Luke in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Well, it wasn't that easy because he was squirming. Mm -hmm. gave me some sense of the power of the sacrament of baptism. I looked out, and I didn't see a font or a little bowl of water, but an almost seemingly endless amount of grace. And God dishing a little bit of that and saying, Give it to Luke. Let him know I am with him. It's true, what we're going to take bread and wine. Jesus knew that the disciples were going to be really hurting on that Monday, Monday, Thursday, and knew that we would often find times where we're really feeling alone, isolated, lonely, tired. So we were going to need something that we could taste, something that we could see, feel, touch. So he took bread and he took wine, part of the Seder meal and made them into his body and blood, bread and wine. So you're going to taste that a little bit and have a sense to feel the wine going down and taste the bread. That is meant to attach God's presence to you so that if you can taste wine, if you can chew bread, those are sensory experiences tied to invisible realities that God is present with and among you and me. The nature of sacraments. That's why we gather in a sanctuary. This is a mock-up of the tabernacle that Moses built up. Supposedly, I didn't check it out, supposedly to scale out uh, in the uh, desert uh, the Middle East. And God said, I want you to sense my presence because my presence will be sensed as you gather. So they would gather in the tabernacle and go through the worship cycle. Nothing has changed. Oh, we have air conditioning now, <laughs> in that tense, but the gathering of God's people is illustra- illustrative and empowering because it says, you and I together, when we gather, share the same reality. God's presence is among us, working through us, living in us. And His presence gives us purpose. The final thing he said to his disciples was, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. What's present? Same thing that Moses asked for, his presence. I am with you always to the end of the age. You know how you can get this done? Because he's with you. Because his presence is inside you, around you, and among you. Be present back to the very beginning just want you to know God did all this from the creation of the universe to the making his son sin so he could be face to face with you and guess what it's as good as done in Jesus name Amen